Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're visiting a lovely B&B in the country. I'm speaking to Rachel Harrison, the author of word-of-mouth hit The Return. The Return was published all the way back in March, but this week I finally managed to catch up with Rachel to talk about it. She's in the throes of editing her new novel, but she graciously spent some time retreading her debut. We talked a lot about what it has to say about the nature of friendship, and we speculate as to why the hell it scared me so much. Yeah, the return is downright creepy. I'm not easily scared, well, not by books at least, but this novel did a real job on me. It's almost as if Rachel was aware of my own personal neuroses and and beamed these images into my brain with the specific aim of disturbing my sleep, and it worked. But then again, that's how all good horror should make you feel, like universal terrors have been machine-tuned to hurt you with maximum effect. One slight caveat this week, during our chat, Rachel and I picked up some sound distortion on the line. We've tried to edit this to an absolute minimum, but if, if you do hear the weird scratching noise, just pray it's a technical glitch and not some force from beyond saying its name in an alien tongue. And by the way, that is the best get out clause for sound issues. So pack your bags. We're off to an eccentric hotel where the rooms delight and disquiet in equal measure. Let's talk scared. So hi, Rachel, and thanks for coming to talk scared with us. In the case of your book, the title of this podcast carries a little bit more weight, as it's one of the few this year that actually managed to scare me, but we'll get into that down the line. First of all, how are you and where do we find you today? I'm doing all right. I'm just hanging out, kind of holed up in my apartment. I just moved to um, a new city in upstate New York, so the weather's a bit different. It's a bit colder than I'm used to, so I'm like now just facing my first winter here and I'm in many layers and excited to be talking to you today about horror. Well, yeah, I'm excited to talk to you as well because, as I say, I, I, as I just told you um, off air, I finished the book about two hours ago and I'm still a little bit shook by it. So let's let's get into it. The The Return came out back in the spring from Hodder in the UK and Berkeley in the US. Is that right? Yes. Yep. So it was recommended to me by Emily Danforth on this show. Um, and I know she listens in. So hi, Emily. And thanks. You were right. Thank you. <laughs> Before we kind of delve into it, can you tell us what we need to know about this book? So The Return, I kind of pitched it like The Shining, but about female friendship. It's about a group of four close friends from college and their lives have kind of all diverged and they, they're they still close, but they don't live close to each other and don't maybe talk as much as they used to. And one of the friends disappears mysteriously returns two years later claiming she has no memory of where she's been and the friends all decide to reunite at like a kitschy hotel in like the middle of nowhere and all the rooms have different themes and it's like kind of kind of cheesy but um they all reunite and they're happy to be together and see their friend who they kind of presumed was dead but when she arrives, she doesn't look good at all. She's very thin and there's something just off about her. And as the weekend goes on, the friends kind of have to face their demons and um, the truth about where their friend was and if she's the same. Uh, I'm a bit rusty. I, it's weird. I haven't talked about the book in so long. It's weird as a writer, you spend so much time like in this world creating this book and then, like, a few months go by when you're not talking about it. You're like, yeah, what is the gang all up to? What is that book about? <laughs> you kind of move on. But I'm happy to be kind of talking about it again because I miss the characters, the this, like, core group of, of women. Yeah, they are a, a unique bunch, and we'll get into yeah. that. Yeah, because as you say, I mean, you, this was months ago this came out, and it's just a good opportunity to, to kind of pick up. In, in December, when there aren't many new horror books out, it's, it's a good chance to pick up with with books I missed earlier in the year. Also, it's quite nice to do a do a, an interview about a book that a lot of the listeners have probably read, because normally, I'm assuming, 
they said these interviews come out before uh, people read the books, whereas this one might answer some questions people already have, which will be nice. The book terrified me in parts. There's no two ways about it. And, and I'm not an easy man to scare when it comes to, to kind of fictional horror. I've read a lot of it. It scared me in the same way that a story by Gemma Files called The Puppet Motel scared me earlier in the year, in that it, it managed to... Um, I, I read it at a time where I was really experiencing a lot of the things that some of the characters experience. So I've been having issues sleeping. I've been waking up in confused states and kind of thinking I'm seeing things. And it just felt like every time I turned a page, there was there was someone experiencing something that I was going through, which it, which is not great for the uh, the old mental health when you're lying in bed at night and you can't sleep. Let's let's get into it then. A book this grim and scary. Where on earth did the idea come from? What what twisted part of your mind did this surface from? That's a good question. I don't quite remember because I write. Uh, I used to write very early in the morning because I had a full time job, like a nine to five. So I would wake up at like four four thirty and and write. And so I don't like remember the exact moment where I came up with the concept. But really, the horror stuff kind of came about as I was writing. Like I had this kind of idea where I, I wanted to write about friendship and kind of this time in your twenties that's really confusing where everybody's kind of on a different page. And so it was mostly about that. And then I came up with like the idea to set it at the hotel, kind of like, well, what if the overlook was like really gaudy and like cheesy? Like what would that look like? Um, but like the more nuanced scenes where like scary stuff is actually happening, um, that kind of came about as I was writing. And I'm somebody who's terrified of everything. And I have really, really horrible anxiety. So like a lot of the stuff where it's like, you know, am I really seeing what I think I'm seeing? Or like, I heard a noise. What is that noise? That just kind of all came from experience and just like what it's like to be inside my brain. Just like the worst possible scenario when you're, again, like lying awake at night and you wake up and you're like, there's a shadow. Like, what is, is, is that, where's that coming from? What is that shadow? And your mind kind of plays these tricks on you where you don't quite believe yourself. Um, that's kind of where the horror in the book, I think, really comes from. That weird space where you're like, should I trust that I'm seeing what I think I'm seeing? Or am I being, should I dismiss this as just like frivolous fear? Um, so that is kind of where the the meat of the horror comes from, like the meat of it comes from in this book. And I think whenever I write horror, I kind of dial into that because it's, it's very rooted in my own personal experience. Well, you're amongst friends here. Cause like I, you know, <laughs> I've made no secret of the fact that I, I have all kinds of anxiety. You know, I, I'm a man who loves horror books and horror films and I have anxiety. It doesn't, doesn't really compute. Yeah, exactly that, that, that not trusting your own senses. Like my, I've had a bout recently of kind of quite strange tinnitus where I'm like, is that noise in my own head or is it in the room? Right. Um, and you become obsessed by it for, for reasons you can't quite explain. So it doesn't matter either way, but yeah, this, this book captures that strange sensory experience really well. Um, and I think it's why it unnerved me so much. It's your first novel. You say you you were writing it early in the morning. So you've published quite a bit of, of short fiction. But what was the process of writing this like? Was it daunting? Did you enjoy it? So I love, I love to write. I love that moment where it's just you and your book and like you're obsessed with it, like in that honeymoon phase where you're writing it. And I I love it. So writing it was super, super fun. Um, especially because I kind of had that feeling where I was like, this, this might be something. <laughs> um, and cause at the time I didn't have an agent. Um, and it was just me alone at four thirty in the morning on my couch, which is, you know, to some people are like, Oh my God, it's so early. But for me, it's like that just time where like, nobody's awake yet. So it's just like you alone in the world, creating a world. So it was really special. The process was fun and cool and awesome. And I loved writing it. And then when I was kind of in a place where like, I want to try and do something with this, that's kind of when things turn scary for me. <laughs> Putting it out into the world is terrifying. When it's just me, it's a delight. <laughs> but when you're like, oh my gosh, I want to be a writer. I want people to read this, but also I'm terrified for anyone to read this. It's, a, it's like a very personal thing, I think, when you're writing. 
Yeah, so how have you found the reaction to the book? Have you been pleased by the response? Oh, I don't look at it. It's too scary. I remember, so last October, so it was before the book came out, um, but my publicist got me into Comic-Con and they were doing my book as like part of a book club. And I remember being like really, really excited and like a little bit nervous, but mostly excited because I was going to go to the book club. Like they were all going to talk about it. And then I was going to go like make an appearance at the end. Um, so I'm at Comic-Con and like, I'm there by myself. Like I don't, there's like thousands of people there, but I don't really know anyone. Um, so I'm just kind of like walking around and my publicist like brings me down to the room and she's like, all right, so they're all talking about your book. And like, then like, I'm going to come get you and bring you into the room. And I was sitting outside and I have like a few like talismans. Like I have like a lucky match box and like a little crystal skull. And I was like rubbing them and I was like, I'm going to throw up. Like I feel so nervous. Like, I don't know who thought this was a good idea for me to like walk into a room full of people who are just like a book club style discussing my book. I cannot explain to you. <laughs> it was like an out of body nervous anxiety spiral. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't sound like a, a kind of fun thing for anyone. I mean, if I was in the book club and the author walked in, I would kind of quickly shut up and you know what are you going to get from that suffice to say i loved it emily no one less than emily danforth loved it so you know we'll take that as as the feedback and then we'll move on in a neutral way without embarrassing you <laughs> anymore um, but to get into the, the the book itself now i've i found that interviews for this show often end up focusing on different aspects of certain books so for example emily danforth i asked all about her research Stu Turton, I asked how he plotted. Um, next week, I'm interviewing Michael Marshall Smith, and I intend to ask him all about tone. With the return, I'm most fascinated by character. And it seems the real substance of the book is a kind of exploration of female friendship. And in this novel, that proves to be very murky, dangerous terrain. So I'm going to read a brief quote, which will probably be excruciating for you, but I'll have to do, I'll do it anyway, which gets across how not simple this, this, this group is. So this is the narrator, um, Elise, reflecting on her friendship group. And she says, quote, the group dynamic overwhelmed me sometimes. It could be the most fun I ever had. It could also unearth insecurities. Who was in on what inside joke? Who was present for what? Who remembered what? Who knew the secrets others didn't? Who taught the most? Soldiered the most? Was I everyone's least favourite? Would they even notice if I wasn't there? Now, I've got to say, and this isn't in any way a criticism, it's just a, a conversation point. I do not recognise those thoughts and emotions in my friendships at all. So to start off, I'm wondering whether that's something that you consider a universal condition of female friendship. Or is it supposed to indicate that this is a dysfunctional group? I don't think it's universal. I also don't think it is dysfunctional. I think it's pretty common to have a lot of nuance in friendship. I think, especially a friendship group where everybody's close, there are different dynamics between different people. So I don't think again, everyone's going to read it and be like, this is my group of friends. But I do think a fair amount of people will pick up the book and be able to relate to that. Um, it's definitely something I've experienced personally. It's kind of the friends in the book aren't based off of my friends, but that kind of dynamic is based off of friendships I have in my own group of friends from college. But I think a lot of times friendships in literature and fiction, movies, TV, whatever, they don't always encapsulate nuance. It's kind of like, this is a great friendship or they're frenemies and there's not a lot of room in between. And I don't think that that's necessarily true to life. I think friendships are like any relationship. There can be tension, there can be jealousy, there can be you know, unconditional love. So I 
I do think the book is an exploration of female friendship. That's what I set out to do. I don't think that everyone's going to be like, this is my group of friends. But I do think there are a lot of like different kinds of friendships. <laughs> and um, there's room in friendship to have tension and to have complexities. It doesn't necessarily make it a dysfunctional friendship. What makes it dysfunctional is the kind of subversion of those feelings because it's not what you, you don't think friendships can have those nuances. That's when I think you get in trouble where if you're jealous of a friend and you think, well, well, I can't be jealous of my friend. That's bad. But I I think it's kind of healthy to be like, I'm jealous your life is going a certain way. And like, I'm jealous of X, Y, Z. I think it's kind of normal to be able to say those things or it should be normal. The same way if you were having an issue with a family member or your romantic partner to be like, hey, I'm having an issue. Can we talk this out? I think a lot of times in friendship, we just assume like we're friends, so everything's cool. But I don't necessarily think that's true. I think that can be harmful to just kind of ignore things because you don't think there's room for that in a friendship. Yeah, that's that's a very fair answer. I, I was thinking about, you know, how would this book be different if it was for male friends? Um, and then I, I thought of the, the book and movie Deliverance, which in some ways cleaves to a, a, a quite a similar situation, but how it demonstrates a wholly different kind of complexity in friendship groups. Do you think there are aspects of, you know, female friendship that lend themselves to, to this kind of story? I think so. I mean, I can't really speak to the experience of a like male friendship, but I think those can be complicated too in different ways. I mean, again, I'm kind of based this friendship dynamic off of a friendship dynamic that I experienced in in my life and kind of still experience in that group. Um, but I think also any you put any group of people together and there's going to be tension. Another thing that was important for me to explore in this book was like the idea of change, like the people who you love changing. Um, And when you have a lot of time away from somebody and then you see them again after a long time, they could be completely different and kind of how, how do you cope with that? And I think that can happen in any, you know, it doesn't matter your, you know, whatever you are to come back and, see a friend after a long time has passed and just be like, what happened? Like, this isn't the same. You're different. Um, I think that's kind of a universal thing. I think that will probably happen to everybody in their life where somebody they're close to changes and you can't relate to them anymore or just the relationship is different and maybe beyond the point of, of saving. Yeah, it's its own kind of grief that, you know, that there, there isn't a word for that, is there? You know, we all... We, we understand the grief of, of losing someone through bereavement, but no one ever sets, sets aside any time for grieving friendships. Yeah, and it's I, I kind of describe this book sometimes as a like friendship breakup book because I feel like there's not really... I have had two very close friendships dissolve in my life, and like I don't know what to... I didn't ever know what to do with those feelings because well, you know when you go through a breakup, there's plenty of plenty of like literature and there's songs you can listen to as you like sob in the fetal position. But like, what do you do when you lose a friend? It's just like, people don't really talk about it. I mean, everybody has friendships fall apart in their life. So why don't we talk about it? I've been doing my due diligence and reading other interviews with you. There was one in which you were asked to suggest what your favorite question would be about this book. And you said you'd like to be asked how you feel about Elise. So it's Christmas. I'm going to ask you, but I'm going to expand it a little bit. How do you feel about these women? Do you like them? Yes, I do. I like them all. I'm glad we're talking about character because I, I like characters who read real, who aren't just necessarily like, like I'm not setting out to create likable characters or unlikable characters. I'm just like setting out to create people who feel real. I think all of these people feel real, at least to me they do. But you say that as if that's a really simple thing, and they're very real, so much so that in some parts they're actually quite jarring. 
And and it's it's a kind of quietly revolutionary thing to write a book in which your protagonists are not easily likable. Well, I'm glad that you think so. I think because Elise isn't necessarily likable. She's not necessarily unlikable. She's just a mess. She's just like very messy person. And I think a lot of like I there's a lot of myself in all of these characters. And I don't think I'm not like an Elise level mess, but like I kind of put some of my messiness and thoughts, messy thoughts into her because she just like makes bad choices. And a lot of people make bad choices. Everybody used to say like, you know, why would somebody do this? Like if it were me, I wouldn't go in the haunted house. If it were me, like why would they go in the basement? Don't they know something bad's in there? We're watching on a global scale. I mean, particularly in America where there's people who are just like, I'm not going to wear a mask. Like, (laughs) and it's like, all right, people don't think bad things can happen to them. People don't believe there can be like a ghost right in front of you and you could not believe it, which I think has been proven with everything that's happened this year. There's a very real threat and some people just don't want to face it and don't want to believe it. Uh, I think that's a very like terrifying and human thing. And it's interesting because obviously I wrote the book before this all happened, but I think to a certain extent, Elise is kind of like that where she's like, there's a very real problem, but I'm just not going to face it. (laughs) I think it's just very human to not want to deal with the things that are ugly and terrifying and bad. We just don't, we just want to look the other way. And I think that kind of epitomizes Elise where she just kind of like makes these bad decisions and doesn't want to deal with the consequences. And bad things are happening, but she doesn't want to deal with the consequences, like to just kind of keep the blinders on and keep forging ahead, hoping things get better instead of confronting what's going on and like actually trying to solve problems or reckon with the reality. I'm really glad you mentioned that. I'm really glad you brought it up because that's one of the things that I found really striking about the way you present the horror in this book, because we kind of see it all through Elise's eyes. You know, May and Molly are, are privy to some of it, but we, we don't get their reactions to it, really. It's all from Elise's perspective. And, yeah, she has this really strange, kind of almost flat reaction to really outlandish events, where she'll wake up, and at one point she's sat on the toilet and she sees a, I think, it's, I think this is the creepiest image in the entire book, where she's sat on the toilet and she looks into a bedroom and she sees this sort of shadowy figure scuttle spider-like under her bed. And she just announces it and then goes about her day. Yep. <laughs> it's re- And at first it's kind of like, that, that's strange. It's almost like, I was thinking, you know, as has the author kind of, you know, misjudged the the representation of this. And then as it goes on, you realize it, it's her character. It's, it, it's like what you say, it's that blinkered view of, yep, not going to deal with this, just going to, just going to carry on. But it makes everything really weird in a, in a kind of David Lynch surreal kind of way in that this odd shit is just happening and she's not letting it in. It's very intentional in my writing. And I also think like some people might find it jarring, but to me, that's realistic. If I saw, especially as somebody with anxiety, if I saw a man standing at, like if I walked into my bedroom and it was dark and I saw a man standing in the corner, my first thought would be, oh, it's just, just like, it's a shadow. Move on, Rachel. Because I like, of course it's a shadow. Like your mind would not go to the fact that like, there's a man in the corner of my bedroom. You don't think, like, I just feel like, or like if you saw a monster, your initial reaction would be, Like, I'm not actually seeing this. Again, like, not to bring up the pandemic again, but like a lot of people are just like really in denial about what's happening because how do you wrap your mind around something so horrific? So I actually think it's rooted in realism, (laughs) Um, which might be a little like maybe in a horror novel, the protagonist should be like, it's a monster. Just like know right away that it's a monster. But for me, like, I write from a perspective of like, what would I do? Or like, what would like somebody I know do if they were in this situation? They wouldn't believe, like you wouldn't necessarily jump to the conclusion. Like 
my friend was in a super, <laughs> something supernatural is going on here. He just wouldn't. Like, you would dismiss the noises and dismiss the shapes moving in your periphery because you live in reality. <laughs> you know, those things don't happen in reality. They only happen in books and movies. But I guess when you're in a book or movie, <laughs> how do you, that kind of like removed thing where it's, it's not quite reality, but I'm approaching it from, as a writer, I'm approaching it from a point of like, I want to root this in reality, even though it's a supernatural horror novel. So yeah, it definitely is an interesting balance to strike when you're writing it, where you're like, I want it to be realistic and in the with the character, but like I also it also is genre. So <laughs> where do I make up that um, like chasm between reality and genre? Well, one of the ways you do it is you you go into quite extensive detail in kind of sculpting the internal psychology of these characters, and early on you actually give quite a lot of psychological insight into the way their minds work and their particular quirks, and and those. Those quirks then manifest, quirk is the wrong word again, peccadillos, whatever, they, they then manifest throughout the story. Was it difficult to maintain consistency when you were writing about such complex psychologies? Did you have to almost kind of, you know, really think through the, the, these, these women as almost real people? They definitely were real to me. And I, I kind of get into, I get so into the characters they become so real to me that I remember at one point I was like typing some dialogue for May and kind of just being like, oh no, no, she wouldn't say that. Like it, it just becomes very, it's instinct and it's just like work. Like I work in terms of like really thinking about the characters and thinking about their backstories and like who they are. And like character is very important to me. It's also the most fun. So like I become almost, I hear actors talk about it where one, they play a character like more than once, like Captain America or something. It becomes like part of them. And that's kind of how I feel about my characters where I know what they would or wouldn't do. I know what they would say. I know how they would react to something. It's not difficult for me to kind of keep up with their reactions to things and what they would say and what they would do because it like, it's almost like second nature. But like I catch myself throughout the, as I'm writing, you know, if I, but it's usually pretty quick. Like if Molly did something, like, oh no, Molly wouldn't do that. And then to me, they were very, very real. And it's also kind of sucky because then you finish writing and you're like, I miss, I miss these people. (laughs) It's nice to talk about them again because I haven't hung out with Elise, Julie, Molly and May in in quite some time. Oh yeah, my old pals. (laughs) <laughs> it, it makes me sound like a psycho when I talk about character because sounds like I'm like sitting here like talking to people as I write but I kind of am so do you ever wonder what they're doing now I did at the beginning of quarantine because m- my book came out like right at the beginning of the pandemic I did like stop to think like what would they all be doing Elise would be not careful and doing something stupid like not wearing her mask or like going to meet up with guys. Um, Julie would be not spoiler. <laughs> read the book and then you'll know what Julie's up to. Um, and then Molly and May would both be at home quarantining. Um, Molly perfectly happy to stay inside <laughs> and not have to see anybody. And May would be going a little bit crazy and sending everybody care packages and, um, making masks. So that's, I think that's what they would be up to right now. Um, and hopefully happy, (laughs) hopefully in a good place, maybe doing some like, um, online therapy, hopefully all of them (laughs) intensive, (laughs) intensive, like video therapy. Imagine them on a zoom call. It'd be chaos. Oh, Oh, (laughs) I do wonder a little bit. I've been reflecting on this a lot as I'm reading this book because it's, it's actually, I've realized, quite rare that you read a genre novel that is led by four women with almost no male characters. That's, that's really quite rare. Um, and I, I do wonder if this n- novel has revealed some kind of nascent misogyny in me. Because 
I found it quite hard to forgive some of the character weaknesses that you embed in these women. Yet I'm generally, you know, very forgiving of your standard male flaws, you know, anger, violence, emotional weakness, emotional paralysis, all the things that make, you know, the standard male anti-hero. Um, do you think there's a double standard in this kind of characterization? Yes. And it's interesting to hear you say that because I definitely think I get it a lot more from women. Like I think women are way harder on each other than men tend to be hard on women. I don't care. Like I'm going to continue to write characters who like female characters who are just real people. Um, and I think maybe, I think, you know, I read a fair amount and I think I read a lot of, you know, nuanced female characters, but, um, you know, I just, I do think this book is so like razor focused on like women just kind of in a messy situation being messy that it's easy to be critical of them. And it's like, I'm critical of my friends when they make mistakes. So like I'm guilty of it too. I think part of it is kind of built in where you're supposed to be a little bit like, what are you doing? Like, what's wrong with you? Like, get it together. I think that's part of it. And I think that's just part of being human and, you know, in fiction and in life, you know, we have to deal with each other's flaws and find ways to move on and kind of confront our own flaws. I think a lot of times we're most critical of things with, in other people that kind of are reflected in our own lives or psyches. I didn't set out and write a book where I'm like, these characters, everyone's going to love them. Like I set out to write a book with four characters who felt like people. And in doing that, I knew not everyone was going to love them. And a lot of people were going to be like, they're being very annoying and very, you know, making terrible choices. And like, why aren't they doing this? This book made me think very strongly of my all time favorite horror film which is The Descent. Have you seen it? And if you have, is there any kind of knowing reference or influence there? I've seen bits and pieces at like a friend's house a long time ago, but I, um, I'm pretty wimpy when it comes to horror, so I didn't like sit down and watch the whole thing. But I did know like it existed and it was um, about female friendship and the, the plot and kind of, the general gist of it. So I was aware, but I didn't want to go back and watch while I was in the process of working on this book because I didn't want, you have to be careful about like picking up on certain things or, you know, I wanted my yeah. book to be my own thing and not be like, well, it's kind of like the descent. <laughs> um, but yeah, I am aware. And, and now that I'm so far removed from the return, I can probably go back and watch. There are some really interesting parallels there with the character dynamics. Um, and I think if anyone loves that film, they will like this book. And I think if anyone loves this book, they will like that film. So if you haven't seen or read them, do both. <laughs> Moving on from character, what also plays a massive part in this is the setting. Where on earth did you get the idea for the Red Honey Inn? Because to explain to people who haven't read this, this is the most eccentric hotel in the world. Please tell me it's based on a real place. It is. So I've, I've never been there, but I saw pictures of the Madonna Inn in California. Um, I highly recommend a Google. I'm doing, I'm doing it as we speak. <laughs> Every room has a different theme. Um, it's Oh, wow. Room, it looks like yeah. a casino on crack. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I couldn't go <laughs> because I... I live on the East Coast, so I wasn't just going to pick up and fly to California. But I was like, how cool would it be to like have like a Shining-esque novel set at like the Madonna Inn? Um, so that's where the inspiration for the hotel came from. And um, the hotel in my book is a little bit even more dialed up just because it's genre fiction and why not? But um, yeah, I think... If you're reading the book and want like a visual, a quick Google <laughs> of the Madonna in, like especially um, the like dining room is heavily influenced. The dining room in 
to Red Honey. Um, but yeah, I just think it's the coolest place. And I, I hope to go one day um, just because it was, it was very much an inspiration. Yeah, it, it's like an architectural migraine from what I'm seeing here. Yes. It's, um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. But, but, but your, your hotel, the Red Honey Inn, the, the rooms are so cutesy and quaint that they actually become uncanny and then downright threatening. And what I found really interesting is, and, and I can now see that you said, you know, about the influence of The Shining, because it com- becomes a kind of malignant space. So the layout, the tone, um, the very kind of nature of the hotel seems to be in flux. But without spoiling the kind of the resolution of this mystery, as far as I'm aware, that that can't really be attributed to the cause of what's going on with Julie and all that stuff. So what's the weirdness with the hotel telling us? Is it that Elise is an unreliable narrator or is there something else going on? I think it's just, you could go any place and if something like, it could seem dreamy and fun, but if like something bad's happening or if there's like an underlying issue happening, it turns ugly and becomes terrifying. Um, I do think, you know, there's a little bit of stalking happening and I don't think Elise is always alone in the hotel. Um, but the hotel itself is just a backdrop for the sinister things happening within the group of friends. Um, so it's kind of the thing where like, if Julie came back and she was fine, the hotel would seem very different than how it does through Elise's eyes as the weekend unfurls, knowing that Julie is not okay and having that slowly proven to her through varying yeah. occurrences. That makes sense. But I see what the hotel would also make a really great backdrop for a movie if it was to be made by somebody with an eye for for colour. You know, if somebody like Nicholas Winding Refn or something made this film, that hotel would be amazing. I do, like, it, I the TV rights were sold. So I don't know if anything's going to happen with that, but part of the more than like wanting it to be on tv for the fact of like my career i just want to see what the set would look like yeah and that's yeah. wish fulfillment Burn, right there somebody like that you know it would yeah. be amazing. Somebody <laughs> with an eye for like visual obscenity it would be incredible so we've we've hinted at the kind of the what's going on with jewels and i'm certainly not going to spoil it for anyone um and no one would ever guess you tread a very very fine line in this book between revelation and mystery and at times it reads like outright weird fiction where stuff just happens but then at other times you do give some semblance of an answer to what's going on where did you decide to draw the line when it came to you know showing your cards so i think i i come from more of like a speculative fiction background so not just horror so um I definitely think this book is horror, but for me, my style of horror... Listeners, this book is definitely horror. (laughs) My style of horror is very much like horror that's saying something. So I think the horror in this book for me was sometimes people change and we don't know why and we'll never know why. And things happen to them and like we'll never get an explanation. And so... That's part of what I was exploring in the book, but I didn't, I also have read horror books where you get to the end and you're like, what the heck? Like Nothing was explained and it's unsatisfying. So for me, I kind of wanted to hopefully have it be satisfying enough where someone could read it and close it and be like, whoa, and not feel like they were cheated without having it be like, you know not leaving room for that nuance of like the like it doesn't really matter what happened to Julie it doesn't really matter who Julie is or what she is what matters is that sometimes we lose people and sometimes we see somebody who we've known and who's been close to us and all of a sudden we no longer recognize them so that's kind of what i was trying to say with the book And that was, for me, 
more important than the like the actual explanation. The explanation that I that kind of is woven in is just for the purpose of having it be more satisfying as a work of fiction and as a novel um, and for readers. So that's kind of where the line was. I don't know if I did a good job, but that's where for me, like I set out to like say something and then the genre is like the vehicle for how I'm trying to say it. And hopefully it's satisfying and fun on the way. Question that's got nothing to do with the book, but is the obvious question I've got to ask is it, it jumps out from your author bio. Um, you, it, your, your bio says that when you were at college, you spent your time befriending the ghost in your best friend's apartment. What, what's the story there? Oh, yes. No one's asked me about that. So I, um, I went to college in Boston one summer. My friend and I both lived in Beacon Hill. So Beacon Hill is a very, very old neighborhood. And she moved into her apartment before my apartment was ready. So I was staying in her apartment alone over Memorial Day weekend. And the way it was set up is you walk in and there's like a long hallway. And on one side, there's the living room. And on the other side, it's the kitchen. So I was there alone and I was falling asleep on the couch. And as I was falling asleep, I was like, there's a man in the kitchen. And then I kind of woke up and was like, no, there's nobody there. Again, (laughs) as people, we don't want to believe what we see. So I was just like, all right, you're just like, there's nobody here. You're here alone. And then a few weeks went by, she came back, we were hanging out in the apartment and the way the kitchen table was set up is like, there was two chairs on either side and one of the chairs was kind of in the doorway to where her bedroom was. And that's the chair I would always sit in when I would come over. And I would always feel like there was like somebody standing over me. Like I just got the sense that there was like somebody, you know, when there's somebody behind you and you feel their presence. I would always feel that every time I was over. And so like, I remember the first time I felt it, it being really distinct and being like, there's a, there's a guy behind me to the point where I turned around and I was like, there's nobody there. But I didn't say anything because obviously I was like, I'm not going to be like, I keep feeling a presence in your apartment. I was like, I'm not going to say anything. But it happened like throughout the summer, every time I would go over, I'd be sitting at the table. We'd be like smoking a cigarette, shooting the shit. And like, I'd feel somebody behind me. And so like months went by and finally I said to her, like, you know, you have a ghost, right? And she said to me, the man who stands in my doorway. Yeah. He likes you. (laughs) And so like, I, it was the craziest thing because how did she know where he was standing and how did she know it was a guy? (laughs) It was just this crazy thing. So. Yeah, that's when I made my ghost friend, my ghost boyfriend. Did it did it feel malevolent? It didn't. Though I in my apartment down the street, it always like I hated that apartment because there's just really bad energy in that apartment. So like maybe there was a bad ghost in that apartment, but um the ghost in her apartment, I just always felt like just felt like some dude. Like just felt like some guy. It didn't feel creepy or scary. It just felt like there's something there. Well, as you say, like Beacon Hill is a very old part of town, so who knows? Yeah, maybe a Revolutionary War soldier. I don't know. Yeah, don't I know. Went to, I, I went to Beacon Hill once, and I there's, there's a there's a fire station in Beacon Hill. That's right. Yeah. Yes. And mm-hmm. I I remember I went in there and I got chatting with a with a with an old fireman who like. Bought me a hot dog. I bought me a coke because <laughs> he was a nice guy. It's like a very sounds fond very memories. Boston. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> sounds yeah, like Boston. Great. Boston's a great town. I miss Boston. Of all the places I've lived, I've lived in Brooklyn and Boston and LA. Of all the places, I think I miss Boston the most. Special. It's place. my favorite U.S. city by a, it's a, the best. A, yeah, yeah, by a big margin. What's next for you? Tell us about Cackle. Ah, uh, <laughs> um, yeah. So it's. It's very different from The Return. It's kind of like a dark comedy, part fairy tale, part horror. I it's <laughs> I don't know how to just like for The Return it had a very like easy log line where I was being like it's like The Shining but about female friendship. 
I don't really have one for Cackle. I haven't really um, come up with one yet. Uh, it comes out, I believe, October 5th of 2021. Um, and I'm just in the middle of editing right now. So yeah, I haven't seen a cover yet. I'm very excited to see what the cover will look like. And it's about a woman who moves to a small town and befriends a witch. Yeah? Maybe a witch. We shall see. Maybe a witch. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, yeah, it's kind of like a coming-of-age story about rebelling against fairy tales. Yeah, I'm still working on edits, so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> and, um, I'm excited about it. I'm nervous, and I'm I'm proud of it, I think. I love the title. Thank you. So I, I didn't come... My agent came up with the title for The Return because I was like, help me, I don't know what to do. Um, and I'm terrible with titles in general. So when I came up with the title for Cackle, I was like, huh, that's actually kind of cool. And it just continued to grow on me. So now I'm excited about it. It's, it's, the t- it's a good title. Uh, will Thank you come you. back on the show and talk about it next October then? Of course. Yes. Excellent. Get you, get you locked in early. Right. So let's, let's finish off with the, the, my you know, closing four questions. These always throw up some some nice insights into an author's brain. Um, are you okay for me to just throw these at you, these rapid-fire questions? Yep, I'm ready for it. Okay, cool. What was your gateway to horror? Probably my earliest memory of horror was my mother explaining to me the plot of It because I saw it at a garage sale and was asked my mom what it was about and her explaining it to me and then me being terrified of like sinks and toilets and showers and sewer drains um, that traumatized me. That's probably my gateway to horror in terms of like being terrified, but also being obsessed. That is definitely it. Have you, have you read it? I have. Yes. My favorite book. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. A lot to carry around. I don't, (laughs) I don't do um, Kindle. I need to like read like a physical book. And I remember carting that one back and forth on the subway for a few months that's the only inconvenience of it where you're like (laughs) picking up the heavy one yeah amazing if you could recommend one book for our readers i'd keep doing that one book for our listeners what would it be and why probably catherine house was the book that really like blew my mind this year by elizabeth thomas it's completely unique and beautiful and mesmerizing and it's just like unlike anything I've ever read but it felt like it spoke directly to me so Catherine House by Elizabeth Thomas excellent I've not read it Uh, it's been mentioned to me a few times um so I need to kind of find some time to catch up with it but but god knows how Uh, (laughs) but thank you this is a good question for you as a as someone who's just written their first novel what piece of advice would you give to a fledgling wannabe novelist it's all about persistence that's the only difference between people who like get published and and people who don't it's just keeping at it and just loving it and having faith in yourself and keep going don't give up and yeah it's it's there waiting for you so just keep on keeping on it's always because it brings like a warm glow that that answer (laughs) and lastly the best question of all what truly scares you? Probably a lack of control. <laughs> I, I'm a control freak. So that's probably what terrifies me the most. Trying to think of like a book or a movie that scared me. Again, Catherine House has a moment in it that really, really scared me. Um, the Only Good Indians is very scary. A lot of good horror came out this year. Um, oh, and I watched um, Eyes Without a Face hmm. in October. Um, and I'd never seen, I thought I saw it, but I guess I hadn't seen the whole thing. Um, and that's pretty terrifying. Like opens with this like shot, of like somebody driving down like a street at night and it's black and white. And there's like this like weird carnival music playing any kind of carny music. That's like terrifying to me. I mean, honestly, I'm scared of everything. So this, I could answer this question forever. Um, 
I scare very easily. So I get the what the control thing. If they'd only let me fly the plane, I'd be a lot yeah. better flying. You know. <laughs> but yeah, well, thank you for taking the time to speak to us. As I say, it's it, it's a brilliant book. It scared the pants off me, and I recommend anyone who hasn't yet should catch up with it. Rachel Harrison, thank you for talking scared. Thank you. It was good of Rachel to revisit the return. It must be hard to switch up when you're in the middle of a new project. But as she mentioned, she she thinks and cares very deeply about her characters. So I hope she enjoyed seeing them again as much as I enjoyed meeting them the first time. The Return is a very unnerving book. If you've read it, let me know. What did you think? One thing I would say is that I disagree with Rachel about how the mind works when presented with the uncanny or unnatural. She says that her mind would refuse to accept the the supernatural, that it would leap to other conclusions first. I found the complete opposite to be true. Despite my claiming during sunlit daylight hours that I'm a total rationalist, It only takes a funny noise in the night or a bit of visual disturbance or even a chance coincidence for me to think, ghost, demon, monster. I suppose that's the perils of reading horror when you've got a vivid imagination that tends towards anxiety. The fun never stops. If you liked The Return, or if you think you like the sound of it, then I've got another recommendation for you. Look into the work of Gemma Files. Her short story, The Puppet Motel, is the only other piece of fiction to frighten me this year as badly as The Return. And it does it in a similar way by playing on those sensory experiences like a low hum in the night, those things that tickle something in your brain. I read it in the midst of a bout of tinnitus and again it felt like a story machine tool to terrify me. It was published in Ellen Datlow's Best Horror of the Year and it's forthcoming in Gemma's new collection, which we called In That Endlessness, Our End. And that's coming in the spring, and she'll be on the show to discuss it. As per usual, you can reach me at TalkScaredPod on Twitter, or email me at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. I'm always ludicrously delighted to hear from listeners, and please pretty please leave me a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Those who have, you're beautiful people and good things will happen to you. Until next week, check in early, tip the staff, leave your room as you found it, and clean up the bloodstains for the maid. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared. (laughs) 